0: I think that just the amount of energy and support that's out there, the amount of people I've met that I you know never would have met and otherwise, working on climate things has really inspired me because even though it's a big heavy topic and it seems some days like what are we even doing here? Um, people just have great um, resiliency and great ideas and you know there's always a way that we can sort of think about how to look at it differently. And I've just, Been really excited about that.
1: Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us on The Voices of Greater Yellowstone, where we share the stories and science of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I'm your host, Kristen Oxford. We've been on a bit of a hiatus this summer as our team focused on the Greater Yellowstone Coalition's ambitious and urgent effort to stop a gold mine from being developed on the border of Yellowstone National Park. If you'd like to learn more about that, go check out episode 15 of this podcast. As that campaign nears its close, we're so grateful to be back in podcast land and exploring more exciting Greater Yellowstone stories with you. We know Greater Yellowstone is a remarkable ecosystem. It's also an increasingly vulnerable ecosystem. The impacts of climate change on this landscape can be felt far and wide and are showing up in some surprising ways. As the impacts of climate change put our communities, water, and wildlands at risk, GYC is working alongside diverse partners and stakeholders to better understand climate-related threats, prepare for a warmer, drier future, and protect our most climate-sensitive resources. On today's episode, we're sitting down with GYC's Climate Conservation Coordinator Sierra Harris to learn about her work in climate resiliency. Most recently, she finished a series of interviews with folks on the ground across Greater Yellowstone to get a sense of the climate change impacts people are seeing in real time. With Sierra, we'll also unpack some of the dynamics between weather and climate, hear what brought her to climate work in the first place, discuss some things average people can do to make their communities more resilient, and learn why you probably shouldn't go fishing when it's hot outside. But most of all, we'll talk about how one of the most important things you can do about climate change is simply to talk about it. All right, with that, let's hop into global weirding and climate conversations.
0: Hi, I am Sierra Harris, and I am the Climate Conservation Coordinator for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And what do I do? I work on climate and adaptation and resiliency issues across the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Great.
1: Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you find yourself working on water and climate issues with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition?
0: Well, I never my million years would have said I'd end up in climate change work, but it was a pretty natural progression. I about 15 years ago, I started working um, in the Upper Missouri Headwaters as a water um, program manager. And realized quickly that water pretty much was the problem that we were going to see with climate change. Running out of it, too much of it, what do we do with it? So slowly I just migrated over to like, yeah, everything we do in conservation has to be
1: thinking through the lens of climate change. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And what do you do for fun when you're not working?
0: Well, I spend as much time as humanly possible outside. Just hiking and camping, running with my dog, gardening, you name it. Summer is
1: short and sweet here, so... That is true. We're really feeling that acutely right now as we cruise through September. Um, So climate change is a really big topic to try to cover in a short podcast episode. And frankly, it can be really daunting to talk about at all. So let's just start with the basics. Like, How would you define climate change?
0: For me, it's really looking at what is the best available science that we have right now that looks into the past data of like temperatures and rainfall and all the different things we can see looking back in time and looking at how with the documented increases in temperatures and rainfall and things like that, what we need to look for moving forward. And so climate change is just really, how can we be prepared for a changing climate?
1: Oh, great. Love that. Um, often when we hear stories about climate impacts, they tend to be stories about the weather. So how does weather relate to climate, and why, with so much talk of the planet warming, are so many of the extreme weather events that we've been seeing, things like blizzards and ice storms?
0: Yeah, that, it's a tricky one to tease apart weather and climate change, but really it's they're very linked because climate change is caused by a warming planet. And the warming planet has many different ways that it shows itself through um, the ocean, like ice melt, uh, sorry, sea level rise. And through the um, fact that we have like extreme drought, followed by extreme rain and flooding. And it's just one of the best things I have ever heard is calling it global weirding, because mm-hmm. nothing is going to be predictable. It's really going to be how weather is responding to climate change, but how everything else is responding. And so we often get comments like, well, heck, last year was a drought and now we have too much rain. That's not climate change. And it's like, yes, well, weather is definitely tied to climate change, but it also is its own pattern that goes through history. But climate change is definitely affecting it in many ways.
1: Okay. That's really helpful to understand. Thank you. Um, You know, speaking of flooding and weird weather and stuff, you know, folks in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem will certainly remember and folks outside may well remember that last year in 2022, we had some pretty extreme and destructive flooding along the Yellowstone river and it washed out many roads in the park itself. And a lot of folks lost homes and had property damage and all kinds of stuff. Um, so is there a climate link to flooding events like that? And is that something we might see more of in the future?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So last June, we sort of had the perfect storm of events. Um, We had warming temperatures. We had a lot of rain. We still had heavy snowpack in our mountains. And all that came together at once. And it started melting the snowpack really, really quickly. And it just hit our streams and rivers in one big, giant pulse. And it washed everything out. And yes, I would say we should expect more of that. It definitely... Some floods last for a long time. We see them on the news for days and days and days due to hurricanes or whatever. But this is like a giant melt of snow all happening at once. And since we're pretty famous for our snowpack around here, I think we should be prepared for additional flooding.
1: Yeah, wild. So instead of like slowly melting the snowpack over the course of a season, it's just going to maybe come in a more extreme melting event.
0: Yeah. Like we're finding that on average, our spring temperatures are happening eight days sooner. Like we're getting warmer temperatures earlier in the year. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that that was rain that happened with a warmer temperature on snowpack, that was pretty, we'd had a pretty heavy snowpack time. And so it really melted quickly more than anyone had ever imagined it would.
1: Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, and kind of you know, the next step of that, tell us a little bit about how climate change is playing out across the greater Yellowstone region. So what, you know, in addition to things like more sort of extreme melting and flooding, what are some of the changes that we can anticipate in the next, you know, five years or 20 years?
0: Uh, One of the things that I've talked to a lot of people about is the receding glaciers and people think, oh, that's just in Glacier National Park, but definitely in the Tetons, they're seeing it, they're seeing it on the Wind River reservation in the Wind River Mountains. And so that's just like one of the you know hallmark ways of seeing climate change. But also they're seeing migration patterns shifting for wildlife that things, the vegetation that used to grow in one place no longer grows there because it's too hot and dry. And so that's shifting um, the timing of when animals migrate changes because they often need to get out of the hot and get up into the cooler climate sooner and faster. So that's changing. They're looking at different types of pollinators and things that are happening because plants are blooming at different times. And so it's working its way. And another thing they're seeing is just a lot of invasive plants and species that are taking hold pretty quickly.
1: So GYC's climate program is centered on advancing policies and projects to make the greater Yellowstone ecosystem more resilient to climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those projects?
0: Yeah, we do a lot of fun projects. One of the things we really focus on is natural water storage, which is helping the landscape to store water longer and later into the season. So when those big snow mounts happen, it's important that our creeks and river systems are in a restored state so they can act like a sponge and hold that water and slow the flow. And as it sits in that sponge, so to speak, it slowly works its way back into the stream later in the season. So that allows for cooler water temperatures, higher flows for fish and things like that. And so we work on projects. We pretend to be beavers. We build Hmm. beaver mimicry structures. We're actually creating habitat for actual beavers because they're much better at this than we are. And some other things that we do are work on some policy issues. We're working on floodplain planning protections. So how can we protect our floodplains and wetlands across Montana to ensure that the water has a place to go in big events like the Yellowstone flooding. And our climate work is supporting the work that our Fort Washakie office is doing with tribal water rights and other projects and programs in that area.
1: So when we're talking about work to address climate change, and you and I have already both done this, uh, we use the word resilience or resiliency a lot. So what does that mean? And why aren't we talking about climate change reversal or prevention instead of just resiliency?
0: Yeah, we can't really stop climate change at this point. So um, there's a lot of really great people out there working on car- um, carbon reducing carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. And for us, we really, um, with our work at GYC, we really like to look at how can we make our landscape more resilient to the changes that are happening right now and the changes that we can see that are on the horizon. And so it's just basically providing both the built and the natural landscape with tools to prepare for pretty much anything and the ability to understand why it's happening, not just that it's this big mystery that we have all these crazy weather events and things.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, And sort of as part of that work. You know, you recently conducted a number of interviews with people across the ecosystem, asking them, you know, how climate change is showing up in their daily lives and their work. How did that project come about as a component of your work?
0: It was really great. Once I started working for GYC, I was invited to join this group of conservation practitioners across the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And it's made up of NGOs, a lot of um, federal and state agency folks, And we met every other week or we still meet every other week and talk about like what we're seeing across the landscape. And one of those conversations led to why don't we just ask everybody who's working across the landscape or at least get a smattering of like who's out there and what they're seeing and what's concerning them and what are their biggest barriers. And so I did I created a survey. I interviewed thirty five people, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it really was a lot of people to get them to call me back <laughs> um, but people were really amazing, and we it just led to this survey, which we've now put together and have some pretty interesting results
1: Ah, tell us about those results. What did you learn? you know what kinds of changes were people reporting that they were experiencing?
0: Yeah, a lot of people said they just they couldn't get a handle on the water variability there's either too much not enough there's a drought there's a rainstorm that was a big thing that they're seeing that's just very unpredictable they're seeing a lot of changes to the landscape like habitat conversion like there's this part called conifer encroachment where trees are moving in and kind of bunching out pushing out the sagebrush or pushing out aspen trees and so that they're seeing that by a warmer drier climate Um, fish species are not as strong and healthy as they used to be because they're not enjoying the warmer water temperatures.
1: Hmm. Um, so pretty variable impacts. Um, I guess what I should have asked is, can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of people that you were interviewing? Like, are these farmers, ranchers, recreationists? You know, who who were you actually talking to?
0: So the Greater Yellowstone Climate Assessment did a really great job of interviewing. They did voices of the Greater Yellowstone. So they interviewed a lot of different types of people, stakeholders that are working and this was more specific to federal and state and tribal people that are working in the natural resource conservation field who are out on the ground every day. And um, it was just better to sort of get that handle on what practitioners are seeing in the field.
1: Okay, got it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned water variability, but what are some of the other concerns that people were expressing when it comes to these changes?
0: An increase in wildfires An increase in the number of weeds that come in that then burn, you know, dry up really quickly at the end of the summer and it could cause flash fuels for wildfires. There's just a whole lot of things that we didn't even know would be linked to climate change. And especially this invasive weed issue, it's become pretty apparent across um, the GYE that people are really worried, especially about cheatgrass. Mm.
1: So did anything that you learned over the course of these conversations surprise you? Yeah,
0: I learned that one of the invasive species that's really a big problem are feral horses. The Wind River Reservation has many oh, thousands of feral horses that are really um, hammering the landscape and causing erosion issues and lack of vegetation for um, some of the other animals, elk and deer that need to eat that food. So I was, I had no idea feral horses were such a big issue.
1: Interesting. And so is that, um, is that issue kind of brought about by changes in vegetation?
0: Yeah they are i mean just think if you had wild horse herds running around and they just sort of eat up all the vegetation and there's not enough for the ungulates that live in that area and it's their home and so it's been a real problem
1: yeah that's wild i never would have never would have guessed that either so with all these changes on the landscape and it sounds like probably more to come you know what are some of the barriers that people are finding that are preventing them from being able to adapt or adequately prepare
0: I think the number one thing when I talk to people was capacity. Everyone is very busy with their, I don't want to say day job, but their regular work that they've been assigned to do. And then when they're asked to put sort of a climate hat on as well and think about how their work and their projects is going to be affected by climate change in the future, it's kind of a stressful topic for them because they want to do what's right, but they also know that they're very busy and they want to do the best that they can in their regular jobs. And so it's helping people to learn to sort of blend it all together. That climate, the work they're doing is already climate work, and just to sort of change their frame of reference.
1: Oh, that makes sense. So sort of just integrating, um, integrating those pieces a little bit more. Yeah, got it. So, you know, in thinking about doing interviews, and maybe this was a little different because you were primarily working with like agency folks and other representatives. You know, we live in a pretty dynamic region with a wide range of opinions and perspectives. Did you chat with anyone still resistant to the idea that the climate is changing or perhaps feels like it's just something they don't need to worry about?
0: Not specifically in these interviews, but I've had conversations with people um, over the past couple of years. And it's usually that, isn't this just weather? Isn't the weather just changing? Or, you know, I've been a rancher or I've been a farmer for years and my grandfather said... You know, you know, we used to get rain like this, and then we had this massive drought, and now it's raining again. So it's just gonna, it's gonna, you know, not fix itself, but it's just a cycle that'll work through. And that's the biggest um, sort of pushback I get is like, this is what's to be expected because it's always been this way.
1: Yeah. Do you think there's any amount of that that is related to sort of the phenomenon of shifting baselines? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah, which is just basically that you know what what. Conditions we live in, we assume are normal and we can't cast ourselves back into the past to understand, you know, how things were before. So, yeah, very interesting in lots of aspects of conservation work. So now that this particular set of interviews is over, what's next for you? Like what lies ahead for GYC's climate work in the immediate future?
0: Well, I really hope to gather all the information we got from these interviews and put it into maybe a story map or some sort of report that's really easy to understand. Like, These are the things that are happening in the landscape. These are the places that we need help and support from our communities. And what I really hope is that we get the message out to a a wide audience. It shouldn't just be conservation practitioners. It shouldn't just be the staff that works at GYC. It should really just be everybody who's working out there and across the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in some natural resource capacity and allowing them to ask questions so you know come to different meetings support them with a slideshow if they want to give it to their staff support them with one pagers so that not everybody has to read giant documents so just what is it so i'm working with a small group of people right now and asking them what would be the way that you'd like to share it with your team or what were the what's how what have you seen that's been successful in the past with sharing this type of information without overwhelming people Mm -hmm. and One of the things we're also working on was that um, infrastructure bill that came through. It came with a lot of climate money. And so we're trying to help the different um, groups and agencies that are out there that need to figure out how to get that money on the ground. And they would really like help with coming up with projects and coming up with partnerships and ways that we can sort of share the load of that bulk of money because it's a five-year chunk of money and it's a lot of great money to do great work and so we just need to get ourselves out there and so GYC is definitely diving in deep into that work and it's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah that's that's great you know you said something kind of key in there which is that you know talking about sharing about climate change impacts without overwhelming people you know how do you do that like this is such a a big, unwieldy, existential topic. You know, how do you talk about climate change in a way that doesn't just immediately inspire nothing but overwhelm and doom and gloom?
0: I practice this with my family quite a lot. I think the best thing is to meet people where they're at. And so if you don't immediately start hitting them with facts and data and this sort of doom and gloom, like, oh, everything's going to be terrible... And you just meet them where they're at in terms of like, do you like to fish? Oh, cool. Well, let's talk about fish and the warming waters and hoot owl restrictions that we have here in Montana, which restricts the times of day you can fish. Um, We talk about do you ski? Yeah, I love to ski. Oh, cool. Well you know, we're kind of losing our snowpack in the mountains. And so Montana may be one of the last best places to ski because of where we are in elevation. So what that means for people wanting to move here and ski, you know, in the winter, because it's not available in other parts of the United States. I talk about, um, do you like to garden? Pollinators are awesome. They help us with keeping plants blooming across the landscape that we need that are vital for different food sources for animals. So it's really just kind of Talking to someone and asking them what they're interested in and then just sort of talking, weaving climate change into there. A lot of times I talk about the weather and how it just seems really crazy and oh gosh, climate change is doing this to impact warming climates and things like that. So it's I just try not to be too overwhelming.
1: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And all those examples you just gave are are great examples of the ways that You know, a changing climate is very real and very tangible and very impactful for folks, you know, living in this region in particular. You mentioned the hoot owl restrictions with fishing, which I think actually is a really interesting component of this. So tell us why it would be important to restrict um, fishing to certain parts of the day sometimes.
0: Yeah, so um, fishing in Montana, as you know, is a very big deal. Actually, it is across the entire greater Yellowstone ecosystem. But specifically here um, in the Big Hole and other parts of Montana, what we've been seeing is there's parts of the year when the flow in the stream in the Big Hole River exactly, is very low. It warms up, it stresses the fish out. So if you do what we call it, hoot owl, because you shouldn't be fishing in the later afternoon owl t- owl times, I think that's what they call it. I'm not entirely sure how they got the name hoot owl, but it's better to fish first thing in the morning. and. When the fish are not stressed, it's cooler. And then usually it's around 2 p.m. is when they'd stop it. And also they restrict the number of people that can be in an area, especially sections of different rivers, because too many people fishing all at once, even if it is a cooler time of day, is stressful on their fish populations.
1: Yeah. Why does warm water stress fish? Because I got to say, if I'm choosing to jump in a river, I prefer it to be quite warm.
0: Well, um warmer water has less oxygen and fish need that to survive and it also causes algal blooms and different things like that which are not healthy for the um, repairing ecosystem
1: great so basically the fish are in there just warm sluggish and short of breath and it's not doing them any favors for us to go ahead and yank them out and give them a particularly stressful experience so we're just trying to be uh, a little judicious with how we do that so that those are the hoot owl restrictions so yeah thanks for explaining that Sarah, what do you wish more people knew or accepted about climate change, either in our region or just more broadly?
0: Yeah, for me, it's just really having that conversation about climate change and understanding that it is not a problem that just academics or conservation groups are going to be able to solve all alone. It's going to take all of us working together. And it shouldn't be, you know, you have to invest millions of dollars or buy really expensive new appliances and things. We can just... Have the conversation, talk to your neighbors or colleagues about what they're seeing, and go from there.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it makes me think about this sort of conundrum we have uh, where, you know, we know that most of the ways to address climate change are kind of out of the average person's control and really reside a little bit more with our leadership and large corporations who are having kind of outsized climate impacts. And so, you know, are the ones that then could have an outsized, um, impact on helping solve this challenge. But even so, um, you know, what are some things that individuals like our listeners could do to help make their, their own region a little more resilient to climate change or just, I guess, how to use a bit of the cliche term, you know, how can they make a difference? Yeah,
0: there's a lot of really great things. I mean, one thing is just really just talking about climate change and just having it be a normal conversation you have with your neighbor or whomever. Um, When you do that, you can also start looking into what activities are happening in your community. I'm always amazed at how many groups work on different parts of climate change. I recently attended the Montana Climate Summit, and there was just a wide variety of people there. Working on different issues, and there's just lots of ways to get people involved. And so, just join a group, listen to a podcast, go out to, you know, a rally about anything, and try to figure out what you can do or what's within your comfort zone of doing. Whether it's, you know, conserving water or it's planting a pollinator garden or recycling. You know, everybody should do their part, but they should just talk about what they're doing and how they're playing a part because it doesn't need to be all on the shoulders of Academics and scientists
1: and policymakers. Yeah, it's like we need to normalize and kind of de wonkify the topic. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that you never thought you'd end up working in climate change. Um, can you dig into that a little
0: bit more for us? Absolutely. I started out wanting to um, study wolves in Yellowstone, that was like my dream. And I realized pretty much everyone wants to study wolves in Yellowstone. So I had an opportunity to um, go to Australia when I was in college and study tropical fruit bats. And when I was there, and this was a long time ago, there was issues with climate change already. They were cutting down parts of the rainforest, and there was this massive tick epidemic that was killing these flying fruit fox bats. And it was related to the fact that it was a hotter, dry environment, and these ticks excelled in that environment. And so, that was the first time I had a reality like, "Oh, wow! Look at climate change affecting rainforests and things like." People just think climate change is everything's drying up and hot like a desert. And so, that sort of got me interested. And then, when I was in graduate school, I realized um, I lived in San Diego, and that was a county that had um, 88 threatened and endangered species. It's quite possibly more now in one county and we have 17 in the entire state of Montana, so it's quite a difference. And I realized that I felt pretty hopeless, and I really wanted to find a way that I could give back. So I moved back to the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, where I still felt like I could get a handle on conservation and water and wildlife issues. And working on water slowly led me to realize what a big deal water was across the West. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of books, a lot of great information out there, but Until you see it firsthand working with watershed groups and landowners and things, you realize that this is a big deal. And we have a responsibility as being a headwaters area, which basically means all the water that um, stems from our mountains and stuff eventually makes its way downstream into the Missouri River and other places. So it made me realize that every drop of water that we save or conserve in this area is going to make a difference downstream. And then it sort of just led to well, I can't just think about water. There's an entire ecosystem out there. And so I got excited about climate change and decided that, yeah, this is a place I can make a difference and I enjoy it. And I've met a lot of really amazing, interesting people along the way.
1: Wow, yeah, that's quite a journey from wolves to fruit bats to ticks to (laughs) a biodiversity crisis in Southern California, back to the greater Yellowstone. Um, Are you seeing more positions out there, like more jobs with the word climate in the title? Because yours says climate right in the title. Um, Is that something that you're noticing more of? It is actually. I was um, amazed that once I um, accepted
0: this position, how many other places had it. And it wasn't just like community organizers that were going out and trying to get people to help with climate bills and things it was a lot of like we're going to write a climate adaptation plan and we need a climate adaptation organizer we need um, students to be able to work underneath this climate person at a school or a university and so it's really become sort of an over an umbrella position for a lot of different agencies where they wrap all their other work sort of under this climate lens And it's, it makes me happy to see that it's spreading out there and there's a lot of great jobs that have come about and you can really work anywhere, big city, little cities here out in the great West. So.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's like pretty universal at this point. Sierra, climate change, um, can be a tough issue to work on. We've already touched on that a bit. What keeps you hopeful? Well,
0: two things really. I think that just the amount of energy and support that's out there the amount of people I've met that I you know never would have met and otherwise working on climate things has really inspired me because even though it's a big heavy topic and it seems some days like what are we even doing here um, people just have great um, resiliency and great ideas and you know there's always a way that we can sort of think about how to look at it differently and I've just been really excited about that and then the second part is I mean just as cliche as it sounds just getting out there in the landscape being able to hike and camp and watch what, um, birds and pick flowers actually no picking flowers just observing <laughs> flowers only photos and I just yeah just getting the out there and the ability to just really be a part of the landscape
1: yeah thanks for sharing that Okay, we have quite the range of listener questions for you now. So we're going to start with a kind of local one. Um, Steven from Montana asks, I noticed that the fire season here in Montana was not as bad compared to previous years. Why are some summers really bad and other years not so much? Is that related to climate change? Yes, it is. There
0: are a lot of factors um, out there that affect the wildfire season here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem especially areas that uh, have had many years of drought in a row, or they've had pine bark beetle invasions and different things like that. Those are perfect, um, I guess you could say, ingredients for a, a pretty crazy wildfire season. Somehow this summer, we've had a really wet summer. And despite the fact that we had a lot of early rain and later midsummer rain, and now late summer, early fall rain, it hasn't really dried out. And we've been pretty fortunate. And the temperatures have only hit you know, hot areas briefly so we're lucky this year next year could be completely different we could have low snowpack we could have times when we don't get any snow for like many many months in a row or it gets really hot like in january that happens a lot so all those things sort of build into the next fire season and we're seeing all those crazy fires in canada right now those lasted from over the winter and they just continued on and blew up again once it got hot and dry because they didn't get enough moisture so climate change is creating a warmer, drier environment, it's also creating um, growing seasons that are different and not what they used to be. So it's pretty real that wildfires will be increasing and they will not
1: be predictable. Mm, Wild. Okay, well, thanks for that explanation. Um, Next up, we have Emily from Colorado who asks, how does climate change affect wildlife like grizzly bears and wolves?
0: That's a great question because we often think about, you know, water and fish and things like that. But when you think about the animals that live out on the landscape, um, especially predators, it's important to think about how their food habits and their food availability is going to be changing. Because as elk and deer and things move across the landscape to get places where there's more vegetation to eat, it changes their migration route, which then will cause the grizzly bears and wolves to change their routes. And then, you know, if you remember from a previous podcast, we talked about um, white bark pine, and that is a really important food source for bears in the fall. And they need that before they go into hibernation. And so, and our white bark pine tree species are at elevations that are really high, and those areas are getting hotter and drier, which is causing that tree species to die off. And that food source for bears is not available or not available in the quantity that's needed. So, that sort of pushes those animals into other places and sometimes it might get them in trouble they may end up in a garbage can in someone's neighborhood or they may end up eating dog food so it's really important that we try to keep food sources available in their natural areas for bears and wolves
1: Mm, that makes a lot of sense um next question so olivia from utah wants to know what's the deal with cheatgrass
0: yeah that is a great thing i mean i have learned a lot about cheatgrass um just working on this, those interviews, it is a really pervasive weed. It creates a monoculture. It doesn't allow native plants to grow in. And a lot of um, people that I spoke with were really concerned if there's catastrophic wildfires in an area and it just torches all the vegetation that's in there, that the first thing that might come back in there, if they already have patches of cheatgrass in areas, would be cheatgrass, and it would change the landscape as we know it completely. And those food sources would be gone... And it would really be sort of a huge issue to deal with. And one of the things about cheatgrass is it's, I don't want to say smart, but it's really good at changing how it adapts to the environment. And they're really, scientists and other people are really having a challenging time finding herbicides that can tackle it at the level it needs to be tackled because it's ever-changing. And so... That piece is going on, but also preventing the cheatgrass from moving into areas, educating people what cheatgrass looks like. There's a lot of um, invasive grass grants out there to sort of monitor what's happening out there and what kind of herbicides need to be applied. And it's just a body of science that I didn't even know was a thing. And so I have learned a lot about cheatgrass. And I know cheatgrass sort of represents a lot of invasive species, but that's the one that's at the forefront.
1: Mm, Got it. Oof. Okay, last listener question. Laura from Ohio asks, do you have any advice on how to convince someone that climate change is real and done by people?
0: Yeah, this is a tricky task. I think the important thing is to really just hear what they have to say. Try and meet them where they're at. If they have concerns about junk science or whatever, just talk about it. Don't I think people want to be heard when they talk about climate change, either if it's good or bad, and meet them where they're at. If they are um, people that are interested in, you know, car races and things like that, just talk about, wow, maybe there's these awesome electric fuel efficient cars we can get into now and talk about. Or if they're people that want to, um, you know, go explore places they've never been, be like, yeah that place, if, if it, the glaciers melt or whatever happens, may not be available. So we should probably get in there and check it out really soon. But just, I think nobody, everyone wants to be heard and no one wants to feel like their ideas are bad. But I think just quietly and consistently having conversations about climate change, that it's real, it's happening. We are all in the midst of it, whether we want to be or not. And so it's going to take just sort of a community movement, a global movement for us all to be working together to really see a difference.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Sarah, one question that we ask all of our guests, and you are probably aware that this one is coming is, do you have a conservation hero? Can I have two? You may have two.
0: I really love Jane Goodall with all my heart. I've loved her since I was a kid. I wanted to go to Africa and study chimpanzees in the wild, but she was just always a strong woman in conservation that, worked really hard through a lot of adversity and a lot of challenges and I just said, you know, that's the kind of person I want to be who just works through it all and has um, amazing results and just writes books and goes on book tours and stuff. I didn't really want to be that kind of person but I wanted to be like her and her amazing work. And the other person I have to say is my dad. He has always been the biggest proponent of us spending time outside and as when we were kids we went on a lot of hiking and camping and sort of forced family adventures outside that were not always my favorite. And I always was confused why my dad, who works in conservation, would also want to spend so much time outside in conservation. And it sort of sparked in me, I don't know how old it was, definitely done with high school, though, and in college, when I realized that, yeah, you have to appreciate the places you work, and that's what inspires you. And if you don't get out there and enjoy them, and you're just reading about them in a piece of paper or in a newspaper article, it's not going to hit home.
1: And so... I thank
0: my dad for all that wonderful stuff that we got to do outside when we were kids because it really did make a difference.
1: It sounds like he knew what he was doing. Uh, Sierra Harris, thank you so much for joining us on The Voices of Greater Yellowstone. It was absolutely a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun, and I am really glad I got to be a part of the podcast. Another enormous thank you to Sierra for joining us on the podcast and sharing her story and her work with us. Sierra, we're so grateful you're out there making Greater Yellowstone a more climate resilient ecosystem. To truly sum it up, climate change is terrifying, but there is still hope. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition is committed to contributing to our collective understanding of how climate change is impacting and will continue to impact the ecosystem. And because we know that climate solutions will only be durable and sustainable if they incorporate the knowledge and experience of diverse communities within Greater Yellowstone, we are hard at work alongside our partners building a base of scientific and community based information and preparing to tackle the weirdness together. The Greater Yellowstone Coalition is a conservation nonprofit that works with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. With Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks at its core, the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is one of the last nearly intact temperate ecosystems on Earth, meaning it has most of its original wildlife and plant species and still contains large swaths of undeveloped open lands. If you'd like to support our work, please consider making a gift in the form of a donation to GYC. You can find a link in the show notes of this episode. Every dollar helps keep Greater Yellowstone remarkable. Or you can sign up for our email list and start getting updates on our work and opportunities to take action. We appreciate all you do for this special corner of the globe. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.